Hey guys, it's Neve from MTV's Catfish inviting you to join me on September 13th at the Urban Justice Center's annual Night Out Gala at the Museum of the City of New York. An evening of music, art, food, fun, and of course cocktails under the stars overlooking Central Park. Visit urbanjustice.org to get your tickets. And yes, this really is Neve, and I really will see you there. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Whether or not a particular statue, or say, an entire genre of statues like those dedicated to the Confederacy, should be removed has become one of those evergreen wedge issues. It's perfect because each person has their own ideas about what should and should not be on display, or what is or is not history, which of course leads to qualifiers, hyperbole, and backtracking. In short, lots and lots of arguing. In the December 2021 issue, Headley Twiddle followed the various trails that led toward the missing nose of a monument to Cecil Rhodes. Those who might have cut it off, those who definitely sought to replace it, and other sundry characters in Cape Town, South Africa. It's a rich piece of writing, one with the intrigue of a detective story that avoids dogma but doesn't shy away from history. I spoke with Twiddle about his experimental approach to nonfiction, the presence of the colonial and the post-colonial, and Nikolai Gogol. This piece is kind of hard to describe because it touches on so many different aspects of the city of Cape Town, of South Africa, of history, of life in the present and in the past, and just these different, just, it has so many different textures but the you know the centering absence of course is uh Cecil Rhodes nose and what is it I mean one of the things that really surprised me reading this piece is that there are so many statues of Cecil Rhodes in in Cape Town and you know when someone does something to them or suggests they be taken down certain people get very angry and so it's what is it about Rhodes that makes him so essential besides the obvious answer being like white supremacy he is everywhere and if you threaten to take him away people get very upset yeah he is everywhere not just in the statues I mean there's a Rhodes Drive there's a Mount Rhodes there's even the Mandela Rhodes place which is very strange yoking together of, (laughs) Mm. of two names And, you know, there's even a forest called Cecilia Forest, which I hadn't even really realized this. But one day I realized actually it was named after Cecil, Cecilia. (laughs) And, you know, that that was an alternate name for for Rhodesia as well. You know, Rose is one of the few people who had a country named after him or named a country after himself, whatever it might have been. Yeah, he was just, he sort of totally dominated the colonial context of the late 19th century. And he he was just a man of sort of ceaseless energy who had all these different interests, financial, political, environmental, farming. And so he's left this, especially, you know, where I work, which is this University of Cape Town, it's on the slopes of Table Mountain. This estate was was sort of left by him 
to the nation of, of what would be South Africa. You know, so we're almost living in his back garden in a way. And <laughs> so it's sort of so, uh, I think a lot of the protests that we had um, from students in, in the last few years is just this sort of sense of, of claustrophobia and this sort of overbearing patriarchal, you know, colonial figure. I mean, I feel it, you know. And I'm a pale male who's sort of of English extraction. <laughs> so what it must feel to 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 other people, you know, it's a very very complex city, all kinds of backgrounds. So I think it's a strange sense of living, not even in the political landscape that he that he helped shape, but even the very physical landscape. You know, the the pine trees that he planted, the avenues he laid out, the hydrangeas, the old zoo. It's just everywhere. And you know, speaking about the students, as I understand the. Roads Must Fall movement arose from the Road So White movement, which was a group of students at Rhodes University who were talking about the curriculum, talking about their experiences on campus, sort of being marginalized. And it's interesting because that, of course, Road So White is clearly related to Oscar So White. And a lot of South African student movements are kind of in conversation with Black Lives Matter movements here. And I would be interested to hear more about that dynamic, that kind of internationalism that is happening. I mean, and of course, it's like interesting because the whole reason why the UK wanted to create a colony in South Africa is because they thought they could like produce less expensive cotton after slavery. So it's like the countries have always been in conversation in some respect, even when they weren't directly. You know, I'm... uh... I'm mindful that I, I, I'm nervous about speaking about Roads Must Fall because a lot of it was about not being spoken for by people who weren't directly involved. But I think you're absolutely right. There was there was a lot of okay, then then sure. <laughs> no, there was there was a lot of yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of I think exchange between debates in the U.S. and Black Lives Matter and Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall, which is what it became. And yeah, clearly there were movements and moments that were inflicting each other, feeding off each other in those years. And of course, the, you know, the sort of primal scene of, the, of which really launched the wave of protests on my campus was when well, it was interesting how different newspapers referred to it. Some said excrement, some said feces. I, I normally just say shit, you know, the, the road statue on campus was pelted with shit by students uh, in a kind of performance activist piece. And from then on, things began gathering momentum, and 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 that statue was was removed. It was sort of unbolted from its plinth and and put on the back of a a flatbed truck or a bucky, as we say here, and sort of zoomed down Rose Drive, zoomed down the highway, and put in a secret location. But the other statue, which is further up on the slopes, which is in his memorial, where he sort of leans on his chin, looking kind of languid and bored, that was where the nose was removed obviously with a quite serious power tool because it's, you know, a very substantial monument, that one, built after his death at the sort of height of of the British, the final sort of flush of the British Empire in Southern Africa. So, yeah, it was, you know, and the third statue was is one in, in, in a park in the center of Cape Town where he's sort of, it's, it's striding roads and he's, he lifts his left hand. It's, it looks sort of a bit fascist, a bit more maybe like the Mussolini salute rather than Hitler salute. And he He's pointing, and there's an inscription that says, your hinterland is there. And uh, Cape Town writer Alex Aguma always liked to say that, you know, Rhodes looked like he was pointing towards the segregated toilets 
of the park in those bad old days. So, you know, so th there's always been this sort of absurdity of having these statues looming over the city. And, you know, there were, there were even protests in the mid 20th century, actually by Afrikaans, South Africans, who protested against Rhodes as a British imperialist, you know. So there's a long history of sort of creative interventions, so we call them in these three statues. Um, but the Rhodes Must Fall movement, which was definitely spurred on by and in a dialogue with Black Lives Matter and other movements in, you know, Rhodes Must Fall in Oxford, where Rhodes was a student and other kinds of questions about Confederate generals and so on, all of that. That was the, the wave of protest which actually got one of them removed. But the others, the others still stand, one without a nose and one with quite a deep gash in the Achilles heel of the striding roads where it's quite interesting. I think some performance students just roped it off in broad daylight and started cutting it down with an angle grinder and no one really noticed for a while, you know, and then eventually you know, they were stopped. But yeah, so those are, those are the statues that I'm sort of dealing with in the piece. So you said that you teach Gogol's story, the nose, every year. What is it about that story that keeps you teaching it over and over? And how do students respond to it? Yeah, I think there's something so gloriously bizarre and absurd about that story. And the narrator knows it. And he sort of, at several points in the story, just stops everything and says, you know, this, this doesn't make sense. And we can see that this just doesn't add up or this is, we can scarcely believe that things like this happen in the world, but that, you know, that's how it is. And there's something, I think what attracts me to, to Gogol and also to, you know, many people who are influenced by him. And of course, Kafka, I think of as very Gogolian as well, is that their stories are almost like fairy tales that have, that have survived on into the modern world. As soon as you try to start analyzing them or deciphering them or interpreting them in a clunky way you're so caught out by the irony and the humor and the agility and just the sheer silliness of of the stories or their sort of instability and their absurdity so you know i suppose part of what i was thinking of in the piece is trying to look at all of these questions these very weighty questions of roads and colonialism and all the debates that are convulsing the academy all these weighty debates about race and identity and history uh, which are very important but they can lead to a kind of language or a discussion or just a mode which is very it's very literal and it can be very very serious of course and it, it can make identities very homogenous and very sort of thin and so what I like about the Gogol and, you know, also teach Kafka and so on, because everyone else is sort of teaching South African literature now <laughs> as a result of our curriculum changes, you know, which is actually my speciality. But I've actually found that I've, I've tried to work with these strange and deeply imaginative works, which I think sometimes allow students to talk about things in a way that's a bit more free and creative than in the immediate discourses of the unfolding present, you know, which is happening everywhere else, isn't it? You know, online and in discussion, in meetings. So, so, so there's partly that, but there's just something so 
uh, William Kentridge is, is a South African artist who, who made a series of etchings and, and did the stage design for Shostakovich's opera. So Shostakovich in the 1920s wrote an opera based on Gogol's story, The Nose. And Kentridge, you know, worked with that opera a lot, did a lot of stage design. And he made this remark writing about it that when you get to an absurd story like Gogol or like the metamorphosis, I think, too, you make one little change to reality. You make one little absurd change. So a man wakes up and his nose has disappeared from his face and his nose is gallivanting around St. Petersburg, wearing a uniform of a higher rank than him, looking down on him, having more success with the ladies than him. You know, that's an absurd premise. But the, the game of the story is to then say, okay, what happens if, you know, and then to run the program, to run the algorithm, to, to just let things unfold and sort of pile up from this one initial absurdity. Same thing with the metamorphosis. Samsa wakes up and he's a bug, he's a, he's a cockroach, he's whatever. And then this sort of whole question about whether he's going to be late for work starts unfolding. It's just this one change is made and then the main, the main change has happened even before the stories have started and then we, we see their effects and the program is run. And the, the, the other thing that I, I love about both, both of those stories is that both Kovalyov, the man who's lost his nose in Gogol's story, and Samsa, who's turned into some kind of monstrous insect, they never look at their predicament right in the face, as it were. And they never sort of say, oh, my God, I've lost my nose, or this, you know, oh, my God, I'm an insect. They say, oh, well, you know, the fact that my nose is going around is actually very disrespectful to me, and, you know, they seem to have a higher rank and they dressed, you know, they, I was supposed to go to a soiree tonight and it's going to be very embarrassing. The same with Kafka, with Samsa, he's worried about being late. Well, yeah, he, he needs to get to work. He needs to get to work. <laughs> he's worried about what his family are going to think. So it's sort of what makes him so annoying and so strange and so dreamlike is there's this, this sort of central absurdity or horror that can never really be named. And then it's refracted in all of these bizarre ways into this ramifying, increasingly bizarre pileup of, of things. And I just found that a kind of real version of this was playing out just a few hundred meters away from where I was lecturing when this nose literally disappeared. And I suppose I started, I kept on teaching the, the, the nose just so I could ask students, many of whom I knew were you know, active in the student movements, do you know where it is? Do you know where the actual nose of Cecil Rose is? Because I just want to know what happened to it. I, it was like when you lose a wallet or something, you know it's, you know it's somewhere, but where is it? <laughs> you know, I feel just somewhere in the city, but where was it? And, and what, what story would its adventures tell? So, yeah, that was sort of, it, it was just this sort of, this blending of the realism into the absurd and the absurd into the real that I found sort of compelling. And I, I just kept on asking for intel and then, you know, several years later, I eventually got a tip off and then, you know, things unfolded from there. I think you're making an interesting point that, you know, when we work with allegory, when we work with things like magical realism, especially obviously very rich in a Latin American context, you, you can find new ways to talk about things that are otherwise taken for granted. What role does serendipity play for you in the process of finding a story? Is it something you explicitly try to work with? Because again, this piece moves in a very strange way, but yet it's always a, a documentary, 
Right. It's it's always following the nose, I guess. You follow your nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's being it's being led by the nose. Yes. Yeah, there were all these nose puns Terrible. that just had to be cut, you know. <laughs> I wanted one to stay you know, about, you know, trying to get away from being on the nose. But no, they all had to be cut. So yeah, no, serendipity was was very important here. And one of the most I mean, I suppose the most serendipitous or the strangest association that really you know, set it off, was this question of a man who had been leading a campaign to save chameleons in the winelands around Cape Town. So, you know, when these noses started getting removed from the Cecil Rhodes monument and then getting replaced by someone, and then there was this cat and mouse game where someone was removing the noses, and then this organization called the Friends of Rhodes Memorial was making prosthetic noses out of various materials, experimenting with them, reattaching them. So I started wondering, who, who are these people? And then I was looking at their website, and then they had a claim, obviously being the ideological position they, they, they are, you know, the guardians of, of, of Rhodes's legacy. They were trying to sort of dismiss the uh, Rhodes must fall and fees must fall arguments. And they said, this defacement is probably the same man who set the memorial chapel alight and defaced the memorial in the early 2000s um, because of his campaign around a chameleon, an endangered species being threatened by mechanized wine harvesting in the, the winelands around Cape Town, which, which immediately sounds like an absolute nonsense. It sounds like pure, pure conspiracy theory, right? But then as I read this, I remembered that there's a very famous and beloved post-apartheid novel by a writer called K. Selodeka, Cabello Selodeka, and it's called The Quiet Violence of Dreams. And it's about the narrator sort of spends a lot of time in a psychiatric institution in, in Cape Town called Falkenberg. And in that hospital, he meets someone who is obsessed with chameleons and saving chameleons from these mechanized harvesters which are shaking the vines and you know then apparently the chameleons would fall into the machines and get into the harvest and so we were all apparently drinking wine that was you know tainted by chameleon blood and this was very bad so you know this this seemed bizarre that there were these two claims made and then what it eventually led to was the realization that this was based on a real person there was a, a, a real person called Matthew Lawrence who was obsessed with the Cape Dwarf Chameleon in the late 1990s and had led this campaign about it. And, you know, that led me to him and a whole previous story about his defacements and his campaign against Rhodes. He never quite explained what Rhodes had to do with chameleons, but Rhodes was also, he'd also had interest in fruit farms and, and wine farms. So there was a kind of a link there. But anyway, that was just one of the very sort of strange serendipitous links, which led me into, I suppose, you know, just these extended conversations with all the people who'd taken an interest in this statue and or direct action, shall we say, either by defacing it or removing the nose or trying to replace it, clean it up, restore it to its former glory and so on. So yeah, that was just, you know, it, 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 <laughs> I was also inspired by Gogol there because his story, he doesn't feel the need to make logical links between different parts of his stories. He will quite, you know, uh, honestly say 
I don't know what happened between this part and this part, a mist descends, you know. So it was quite a challenge to work in this kind of crab-like fashion through all this strange but historically dense and, you know, factual material. But it was those moments of strangeness and serendipity that kind of lured me on when I was stuck. Yeah, well, I mean, you've you've written a book called Experiments with Truth, which explores modes of narrative nonfiction in recent South African literature. And you find a way through all of this that is just, it's very, I want to say unconventional, but unconventional is completely the wrong word because this is, <laughs> this is about something that is so entrenched in South African society that it's just, it's everywhere. So I'll think of another word, but, but you do have this interest in narrative nonfiction and sort of experimenting with it and so on. And so were any of those modes that you wrote about particularly present for you while you were writing this essay? I think that maybe it was it was more like a holiday after quite a lot of serious scholarship around very weighty issues. I mean, you know, if you if you're reading and writing about works that come out of the South African transition, you know, you're dealing with a lot of difficulty, a lot of trauma and a lot of unresolved and unreconciled parts of our history. And, you know, for me, that was really what was at the heart of a lot of the Roads Must Fall and Feeds Must Fall protests. It was this claim that people had been too quick to say that everything had been reconciled or that a viable settlement had been reached in the 90s and that there'd been all these things and all these difficulties and all these unpleasant, awkward, nagging questions from the past that that, that, that we're still there and we're still acting on people's lives. We're still determining people's possibilities in life. And so that, you know, South Africa wasn't looking and still does not look like the South Africa that many people wanted it to be in those days. So a lot of what I've been reading and thinking about in that book that you mentioned, Experiments with Truth, is the kind of yeah, experimental forms of documentary, uh, nonfiction, but also, I suppose, sometimes filmic work that tried to deal with, I kept on getting back to this phrase of the unusable past, because obviously there's a, there's a kind of past that you can press into service and make usable and useful for whatever generally nationalist ideology that you, that you're promulgating. And of course there was a moment in the nineties where textbooks had to be rewritten and a new story had to be told about the past and of course, you know, street names had to change, new statues had to be put up. And that was very important. But I mean, I think there's also a danger, of course, of always reading back into history the desires and needs of the present. And in a sense, making the past conform or perform according to present needs and desires. And I suppose that's inevitable. But I'm, I'm interested in the extent to which writers, artists, and other creative you know, practitioners can delay that process, slow down that process, resist that process, and make the past as it is, unusable, awkward, embarrassing, all the stories that were not heroic that came out of our past, that were not about heroic triumph over adversity, but were about humiliation, collaboration, all sorts of awkward gray areas. So I suppose the tonality of this piece is different to a lot of those works because it's a comic piece. But I think you know, it is linked by that question of not instrumentalizing things, not making things useful. Because at the end of the Gogol story, and I think it's one of my, you know, favorite passages in all of literature, he just says, I just don't know why 
I'm telling the story and why do people write stories like this? Because it's of no use to the motherland or, or the nation, you know. <laughs> he says, it's just, it's, it's of no use. And there's something about that unusability or that sort of resistance of making literature or art into something narrowly instrumental that I think is really freeing. And, you know, South Africa is a, is a lot more complicated and a lot funnier and more absurd than the ways it's often produced internationally or and so on, you know, in the same way that, of course, America is, you know, so the ver version I get of America is, <laughs> is a sort of traduced and reduced and soundbited one, I'm sure. So that's why I wanted to write a piece that gave a different kind of Cape Town as well, because it is a strange place and it's full of unusual people and it's not this sort of world-class city or this tourist destination you know that we often see it being advertised as so i suppose sorry that's a long answer to your question but it's something to do with trying to make trying to make people's lives or write about people's lives in ways that doesn't just make them emblematic of the past in a simple way or or, or narrowly you know symbolic of it of course we're all shaped by it in profound and complex ways and the colonial history of roads continues to act on us spatially, you know, politically, socially, linguistically. But at the same time, you know, to what extent can we not reduce the comedy, the complexity, the strangeness, the sheer oddity of human life to to a very basic idea of of how history acts on us? I suppose those that that's the kind of thing I'm interested in as a reader and as a writer. Well. To speak about quote unquote useful histories that only serve a point, the Friends of Rhodes, was their formation, as you understand it, a was this just sort of like a longstanding organization ever since Cecil Rhodes had like that group of guys, that attractive athletic group of young men running around with him? Or is this a, this is a purely react, I mean, obviously it's reaction, but is this like, when was this organization founded? And was it purely in response to, we need to get a new nose? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, no, absolutely. Rhodes did have his, his sort of retinue of male admirers and secretaries and helpers called Rhodes's lambs back in the day. He, he didn't see, he, he was very uncomfortable with the company of women and, and basically surrounded himself with men. But the Friends of, the Friends of Rhodes Memorial is, is a later, much later development. And basically it came into, as far as I can tell, it came into play when the Rhodes statue in the memorial was, was actually beheaded at one point. So it had already you know, had the nose chopped off. And then during the first lockdown, the hard lockdown of, of the COVID pandemic, people broke into the memorial complex and, and actually beheaded it. And that's, you know, this is a serious bronze bust. It's not like a Soviet one that's hollow where you, you, you wrap it and it goes dong, you know, because I've visited those ones outside Budapest in Memento Park. But this was, this was really solid. So it must have been a huge thing. The, the head was, was, was chopped off and it was found in the bushes by some joggers, according to some reports. And was then taken into the custody of the South African National Parks Board, which runs Table Mountain National Park. That's more aligned with the ruling party of the country, the African National Congress. But Cape Town, in terms of its municipality and provincial government, is run by the opposition, the Democratic Alliance. And so a sort of tension began to arise here between, as I understand it, the national parks and, and the city who wanted their head back. 
And so, you know, there was a kind of stalemate there. Political football was being played with Rose's head. And then the Friends of Rose Memorial, so their founder told me, he established this supposedly nonpartisan body to try and negotiate the release of Rose's head so it could be, re- <laughs> so it could be reattached from a political stalemate between the DA and the ANC. So, no, it's a, it's a recent body and it's, yeah, it's just uh, unashamedly devoted to the cult of Rhodes. And, uh, you know, w- whenever the monument gets burnt or spattered or spray painted, it will organize what it calls flash mops where people will come <laughs> Not and- flash mob, flash yeah, mops. Yeah, yeah. Flash mops where, you know, the faithful will come and mop away and clean up the monument. And, and his, his argument is that, you know, it's a well-loved public space where people love having wedding photos taken there and 21st birthday photos taken there. The granite pillars, you know, it's very, it's very sort of stippled, moody granite. It's very good for Instagram backgrounds. So it's, it's very popular. So <laughs> um, Popular with that, who? <laughs> well, actually, with, with, a, with a broad church of, of people from the city. You know, this is the thing with monuments because, you know, some people of, you know, some people speak of them as these sort of towering reminders of the past. And some people just are sort of, oh, it's just a background for, for, for my, you know, my Tinder pick. And you, you sort of try and work out, well, how does a monument like this figure in people's imaginaries? Because it is, it is it's mainly because of, of where the monument is. It's on the slopes. It's a very nice view. And so people, it's not about the monument. It's just about a viewpoint. It just happens to be, you know, the, the sort of temple to Rhodes, which is sort of, it's partly Greek, it's partly sort of Roman, it's partly Egyptian. It's been compared to Nuremberg as well. It's got a sort of proto-totalitarian feel to it. So, yeah, the Friends of Rose Memorial was, was I, I mean, I think it's basically just the, the one man, Gabriel, who I interview. And he said about not only cleaning the memorial, replacing the noses, installing GPS trackers in the noses, he claims, right. so that he could try and look at <laughs> drilling dial rods into them. So they could stabilize them, but then also making 3D printed models of all the lions and all the sort of equestrian statues all around the monuments so that if they ever get removed, he can sort of respawn them. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> so that, that was, yeah, that was, it was, it's interesting sometimes because, you know, I'm obviously I work in a university and it's largely left, left liberal context of a humanities faculty and it's it's quite interesting to talk to someone so far on the other side of of ideological spectrum you know it's just not something that often happens to me but he was he was in his way a very uh, charming man <laughs> so yeah no 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 i mean it's it's funny hearing you say that like i could just imagine somebody who is complaining about Somebody who believes that God's not dead email, just frothing at the mouth at the idea that you were mildly charmed with coming in contact with someone who is more right or more conservative. But I mean, I would love to hear you say more about that because I think, again, you know, most of our listeners are are in uh, the United States. I mean, what does that type of conservatism look like? And again, the fact that it is this particular man's passion is rooted in defending someone who, I mean, you use the term totalitarian. This was someone who slowly but surely gained control of all the minds 
in this new colony, became its prime minister, named it after himself, and then fixed the world's diamond market and still does, basically. The, you know, the De Beers company still has this incredible control and regulates the price of diamonds and, uh, you know, really looks the other way when, um, I don't know, there's a conflict going on and there are conflict diamonds or there are human rights violations associated with or going on around near the mines. So I went on a bit of an anti-diamonds rant, sorry. But (laughs) (laughs) sorry, I feel very strongly, especially as a, a woman, I feel very strongly about this. It's like, a diamond is forever. Well, no, give me anything else, please. But, you know, what does that particular type of conservatism look like? And is it purely rooted in Rhodes or is it kind of Rhodes is just sort of in the pleasant orbit of this ideology? No, I think it, it, it's rooted directly in a cult of personality around Rhodes. I mean, I quoted some lines from Mark Twain when he visited in 1896, and he just remarked on how this figure absolutely dominated South Africa at that point, and he was sort of worshipped by many, hated by many, and he, he, he Twain called him sort of like Deputy God and Deputy Satan at the same time. But the funny thing is, though, that for someone who's sort of inspired this cultish fascination and many hagiographies, he was also a sort of unprepossessing, quite mediocre person, as one biographer called him. And, you know, th- there's there's a wonderful book by William Plumer, who's a South African writer of early 20th century, who I guess a bit like Lytton Strachey, who wrote Eminent Victorians, he, 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 you know, he took it upon himself to prick the bubble of all the pompous biographies of Rhodes that were rolling off the presses. And he wrote this wonderful, scathing, short biography. And he said, if Rhodes was a character in a novel, he would fail to convince the reviewers because he didn't show any trace of development in his character. You know, he was just obsessed with, you know, just this very, very small selection of very basic ideas, you know, which was about spreading British dominion all through the world and, you know, even ideally through the planets. You know, you'd say, I often wish I could annex the planets if I could, you know, and just he wanted he wanted it bigger. He was just a sort of CEO kind of mindset, growth, you know, and and supremacist CEO. <laughs> yeah, so I'll try to white supremacist, yeah. you know, and I, I absolutely, clearly a total white supremacist, and he, he just sort of endlessly espoused these ideas, and yeah, it's just it's hard for me to know, and it it, it actually, you know, I'd been brought to this question a long time ago because I, I I once tried to write a book on the on the literary history of Cape Town. And, you know, I actually abandoned it because I found it too difficult because you'd have to be fluent in a number of languages that I'm not fluent in. And it's such a complex history. It's a story that was, you know, containing a novel by Keiso Lodeka that I mentioned earlier, The Quiet Violence of Dreams, which is about, you know, psychic trauma, post-apartheid. And also a figure like Rudyard Kipling, who was Rhodes's, I could really say he was like a kind of PR man for Rhodes. He came, he met him, he was sort of wowed by him, and then Rhodes built him a little cottage on the slopes of, you know, which is now postgraduate residence. And he was, you know, it's actually quite a sad story to me because Kipling was, for all his incredibly reactionary and objectionable opinions, he was an incredibly talented writer. And he, he, I think he destroyed himself as a writer by coming to South Africa and by allying himself to Rhodes. It, 
it really damaged him. He never recovered. He ended up supporting what was then called the Anglo-Boer War, now called the South African War. And it, he just became a propagandist for Rhodes. And it's, it's, it's just very hard when you read what Kipling writes about him. It's, it's hard to understand the fascination. And it's, it's hard for me to, <laughs> it's hard for me to discern where it lay exactly. But it certainly was there for many people. And it's, you know, the, the, the intriguing thing when speaking to this chairman of the Friends of Rhodes Memorial is he was conceding that his organization was attracting some some strange company, some strange bedfellows, because he was getting elements of the American Christian right coming and supporting him and helping with his flash mobs and even preaching from the steps and, and contributing funds. and White South African farmers getting murdered is a common talking point. Right. Because the, the pipeline between sort of right-wing fringe and right-wing mainstream is not very long. That pipeline is quite short. Yes, and I think it, it, it so it's been it's been taken up into that whole network of, you know, you, you'd sometimes see images of the Crusades, of all this kind of yeah, alt-right, new-right imagery and iconography, which to his defense actually made the, this chair, chairperson very nervous. He didn't like that association at all. And his, his, his sort of campaign was also about art because at one point during the Rosemont Fall protests, a whole lot of art was burnt and um, was taken off the walls and burnt. I actually witnessed this um, happening. I just was walking to my car and... It was a sort of moment of, of, of anger, of protest around a lack of student housing, and it flared up into a protest that led to the burning of, of many artworks that had been hanging on the walls. And as a consequence of that, many, many other artworks were taken down off the walls. And there was always a question of, was it for safety or was it a kind of censorship that had suddenly come into play where certain art and certain artists should no longer be on the walls or who was making those decisions? And, you know, a number of artists were very, very upset about this. I mean, very, you know, people with very honorable political records like David, the photographer David Goldblatt, for example. He removed his entire collection from the university and deposited in America, which is sort of doubly ironic because if he hadn't done that, it would have been destroyed in the fire that wiped out our archives earlier this year. You know, so it's all these, it's just these endlessly spinning narratives around all of this as people are in a sometimes chaotic, sometimes difficult, painful way trying to piece through all of this history and all of the things that have happened in the last few years and come to a position on it. So, so yeah, the, the chairperson of the Friends of Rose Memorial was, who's also, who runs an art journal, he was incensed by the fact that artworks were taken off the wall without a rationale being given. So, you know, that was, that was also part of his freedom. It's also a sort of freedom of expression question, which is, I think, in many ways plays out in a similar way to on uh, American campuses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, <laughs> the strange thing about this nose story is that it was sort of, it was this absence that's drawing in all these different discourses, which I didn't want to address head on because I'm just not good at that. Well, we could talk about some of your academic work. Your research focuses on the environmental humanities and your faculty bio mentions how your work explores the difficult relation between post-colonial and environmentalist approaches in the humanities. And, I mean, it's striking that your investigation of the missing nose takes you into the territory of the nature chameleons, and the, the, the goats that escaped from Rhodes' zoo, and the colonial relationship with nature. 
seems to weave through this narrative Absolutely. of anti-colonial protest. And I mean, I think the way in which we interface with nature is absolutely rooted in colonialism. And I don't think people really want to to deal with that when thinking about climate change. So I wonder what part of that relationship or tension between post-colonialism and environmentalism played for you when you were crafting this story or what that tension actually looks like to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it was trying to make sense of the actual topography, both social and physical, environmental, around the university and around where I used to live in observatory. So observatory, which is you know where I spend quite a lot of the time in the piece, was what was sort of called a gray area even before the end of apartheid. It was a place where there was you know mixing across racial demarcations you know well in advance of the formal end of apartheid. So there was that, which has always been a kind of countercultural suburb, interesting place. Then that opens up onto a kind of parkland stroke buffer zone between you know different group areas as they used to be called the different racialized zones so there you are immediately you have this sort of green belt that's also a barrier and is where the psychiatric hospital falkenberg that matthew lawrence spent some time in and Kaiser Ladeka, the author spent some time in that's there his novel's very much about that part of of, of the world. And, you know, all of that's then looking at the mountain, which is sort of, you know, this overbearing peak with, with the Rose Memorial on it. And that whole landscape is, as you say, it's the landscape and it's an environment that's profoundly caught up in questions of colonial history, because there, there was efforts to, of course, make it look like English parkland. There's, the, there's all of that, the planting of, of various the pines that was you know to evoke the mediterranean landscape which of course became a huge fire hazard and a part of the reason why the university library burnt down half of it and then then there was this you know off off to the side of the campus there's this very strange place called the old zoo which was a kind of menagerie created sort of by roads partly in memory of him where there's lion cages sort of roman lion cages and his idea was to create this large cultural environmental landscape of paddocks and parklands where not only would you know the charismatic megafauna of South Africa be represented like kudus and lions and what have you but you'd also bring in animals fauna and flora from the rest of the British Empire that's why this Himalayan goat the tar was brought in which is you know figures in the piece because at one point the national parks decided they needed to you know cull this goat because it was it was an invasive species and they were they were darting it from helicopters when I was living in Cape Town in my 20s and this was causing uproar in the kind of vegan animal rights community and observatory so it's all there's there's always been this layering of yeah different you know cultures of nature as as Donna Haraway calls it I've always thought that's a that's a useful phrase each society each human kind of community has its particular culture of nature and the culture of nature that shapes the university is is a deeply colonial one in many ways. And yet it also leads to the fact that large parts of the mountainside end up being conserved, protected, which is obviously produces an incredible botanical garden of Kirstenbosch. But then again, the whole question of, of conservation 
has a difficult history in South Africa. You know, um, it's often been allied to political conservatism. I mean, there's a wonderful novel by Nadine Gordimer called The Conservationist, which is a very ironic title. It's about a Johannesburg industrialist, very much a Cecil Rhodes of the 80s, who's, um, you know, has his farm, his farm in Africa, where he, he likes to go and pretend he's, he's a farmer. But it's, it's a deeply ironic take on what conservation and what, what spaces like the game park or the safari park became in colonial and apartheid South Africa. And Jabula Ndebele, the South African writer and, and thinker, he, he, he writes a brilliant essay on this called Game Lodges and Leisure Colonialists, you know, asking about what it's going to take for, for places like game parks, nature reserves, um, to become different spaces, to become democratic spaces, to become post-colonial spaces. Some of them are, you know, they really have changed and it's, it's amazing to go to some of them. Some have not and they're still trapped in this this fever dream of the safari, and which is, you know, how South Africa and many African countries are often produced in the global imagination, you know, as a, as a safari destination. <laughs> so it's, it's all sort of nascent and latent, even on the slopes just around where I work. And it, it, you can read it off the landscape very clearly. I really loved what you were saying before about constructing experimental nonfiction if you were to give someone advice on how to sort of start constructing their own unique approach to a painful personal memory or a painful historical thing or some sort of mix of the two, I mean, how, how do you start? Well, I suppose I think that in a, in a country like ours, which has been so dominated by oppressive, harmful political ideologies that are couched in abstractions and languages that are kind of inhuman and depersonalized. I think that my approach is always to start with something oblique and very concrete and very small and perhaps pretty odd, you know. I guess like the microhistorians would do, start with an object, start with a sort of something tangible and you know for me this was why uh, the nose was was the perfect way in to this question because it was i just kept on having this image of like what it would be like to actually you know hold this nose in your hand because it would be very heavy and i mean i i was given one by the chairperson of the friends of rose memorial he he gave me a fake plastic nose but but the real one is still out there you know i didn't get i didn't i mean you know spoiler alert i didn't i didn't find the original I'm hoping that this piece might cause <laughs> the remover of the urnos to, to, to come out of deep cover and contact me. But, you know, for me, I think it's hard to prescribe one way of doing things. But I've, I, I've be, I read John McPhee's book on how he teaches nonfiction recently. And, and he's very big on imagining a structure, even if it's secret. And even he, he talks about having a, a primary school teacher who would always make them draw the shape of their piece of writing. It could be numerals, it could be a, a geometric shape, it could be just some arrangement of blocks on the floor, but that there needed to be some kind of secret structure. And yeah, that, those are the kinds of experiments in nonfiction that I like. It's not like the academic mode where you have to be so disastrously explicit and say, this is what I'm going to say, now I'm saying it, this is what I've said. The structure can disclose itself slowly, hopefully it does, 
with this piece about the nose, I think it was a big ask for the reader, especially an American reader, you know, because... Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, no, the fact, I mean, it's factually dense and it's it's really rooted in, in a lot of South African stuff. So... I was I was I was partly surprised that that you took it on. Thanks for doing that. But you know, I think that it's as you said, it's arcing across. It's it's containing both Rudyard Kipling and Kay Sello Dacre. It's almost like impossible for one piece of writing to contain writers that different. But this sort of absent thing is sort of allowing these slightly absurd Gogolian segues, you know, between vastly different histories, vastly different personalities and vastly different ideological positions. So yeah, I, I think one's got to find a way to move between things and and to to look for the the, the little widgets or the little engines or the little ways of, of doing that. And when you've when you found one that works, you know, to see where it leads you. Well, that's a beautiful place, Dan. So thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Thanks, Violet, and thanks for having me on the show. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays, to get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 